Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode number 38 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Bob Ruffalo of Impact Branding and Design. I'll be honest with you. Whenever I hear somebody talk about their mission statement or core values, I always think of those cheesy motivational posters with words like courage and perseverance in a picture of a kayaker going over a waterfall or something crazy like that. I felt like they're cliches pushed by management at big corporations with little impact on the overall business. But after talking with Bob, I realized that when core values are truly embodied by an organization, they can have a transformative effect. Bob founded Impact Branding and Design, which is one of only 11 of HubSpot's diamond-certified partner agencies, and they're one of the leading inbound marketing agencies in the country, consistently beating their profit goals today. But a few years ago, their growth had slowed, and they actually started losing money. In this episode, Bob lays everything on the table and makes a case for why cultivating a strong company culture was crucial to their turnaround and how you can get the same results in your agency. So without further ado, here's Bob. All right, Bob, thanks for joining me today. Excited to be here, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And so your agency, Impact Branding and Design, is one of HubSpot's 11 diamond partners and is really a clear leader in the inbound world today. Was building a big agency like this kind of something that you had in the back of your head from day one, or did it just evolve into that? You know, I think it was in my head. Uh, I actually remember... um, probably being a freshman or sophomore in college and, and really being into marketing and uh, advertising, I guess, at the time. And I actually had dreams of starting my own agency. In fact, I even created a logo once called Ad3, and that's what I was going to call my first agency. And um, Never really did anything with that. But yeah, I, I was very into agencies, even though I never worked for one before starting Impact. Um, it was definitely something I, I, I wanted to, to pursue and I'm very happy I did. Right. And so what was kind of the founding of Impact like? Was it just sort of one day you're like, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this? Or I'm guessing there's a little bit more thought and preparation into it than that. Yeah. Um, after school um, and I graduated, I, I really wanted to work for an agency. And I had visited a few. Um, and I kind of lied and said it was for a school project, but I really wanted to see what <laughs> what agencies were like and and I was I was just drawn to that. Um, but when I put my my application in, I couldn't even get an interview for whatever reason. I didn't know anybody in the field, and I, I probably didn't have any um, internships or enough experience. So I didn't get any interviews. So I ended up um, I ended up going to work for a manufacturing company uh, in my town, um, and I worked there for about three years. It was a good opportunity. I learned a lot. That's actually where I learned inbound marketing. It was around uh, 2007, 8, and 9. Were you in a marketing role there? I was. Okay. I was, yeah. So um, when I got to that job, my, my boss at the time said, we have this website, um, see what you can do with it. And he was the CEO of the company. So I looked at the site. I noticed they weren't getting any traffic. So I said, well, how can I get more people onto this website? And that's how I learned about content and keywords and stumbled upon HubSpot's site and and I ended up getting them from, you know, like a, a really 15 to 20 visitors per day up to about 200 visitors per day. And my boss said, oh, this is great. You know, now I have all this traffic, but what I really need is leads. 
So I had to go learn about, you know, calls to action and, and try to optimize the site to drive people to, to convert. And, um, and he was getting a ton of leads. He had no CRM at the time. So we, we were using these yellow pieces of paper and we had them all over the office. And that was my way of knowing I was doing a good job is that we had these quote request forms all over the place. Um, so I'd end up doing some freelancing on the side, learning from that. I had a small little freelance business and, um, and I was ready to take it full time. So, so that's where, you know, that's how impact got started as I kind of separated myself, took a chance and it was just me in my condo with, uh, a laptop and an iPhone. And that was, that was it. Um, as you know, I took on more business, I saved and, and built up a little bit of a bank account. Uh, about six months in, I was able to hire somebody, and and Tom Vesipio was my first hire. Um, contrary to popular belief, that Tom and I actually did not know each other before I started Impact. So he came to our website for whatever reason, applied, thought it was a good place to work, came into my condo, and that didn't even know who I was, and and interviewed at my kitchen table, and uh, was really excited when I offered him a position at part time. Um, and he had a full-time job at the time. So, so Tom came, worked with me out of my condo. We were there for about three weeks before got some real office space. And uh, if you see the pictures of our first office, um, all we had was folding tables. And we put them all against like the back wall. So we had this like big empty room. And it was just folding tables, chairs, and our computers. That's all we had. Um, and eventually, about two years later, we had outgrown that space. We had too many people, too many desks, and too much stuff. Um, and that's that's really the story of how Impact got started. You recently published a really candid kind of two-part series on the growth, the early days, but also kind of the growing pains. And I'll link all those, both of those parts up in the show notes so listeners can kind of get a deeper dive into that. But can you talk kind of about what some of those early growing pains were? Because it, for a lot of smaller agencies – they aren't growing quick enough to have those growing pains. And so, but you guys, you grew very fast, but there still were a few stumbling blocks along the way. Do you mind speaking to that a bit? Well, first things I'll say is, Andy, I was stupid. I was very <laughs> stupid when I started. I didn't know anything um, about what I was doing. Um, I just was a risk taker and I was really, really excited. So I was just go, go, go all the time. Uh, and I never took investment money because probably I didn't know how to take investment money at the time. I just said, okay, well, when we can afford to do things, we'll do that. So our growth strategy as we, you know, as Tom and I, we had this office and we had a, a book of clients and everyone trusts us. We were doing good work. Um, so we were just bringing on interns and I was bringing on interns that I thought could take things off my plate. Right. And if they were okay or good enough to do the job, I would give them the chance and, a lot of them were unpaid interns, and I probably wouldn't do that again, um, but it was the strategy that got us from, you know, uh, just Tom and I up to, you know, 10 people or so. Um, and if the interns were good, we would keep them. If not, the internship ran out, and they would, they would leave. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know how to hire. I was trying to – I was picking the people that seemed like they wanted to be there. They seemed cool, and they, they had some kind of skills or experience in the area or a degree in the area. Um, my philosophy back then was, you know, give everybody a chance and, you know, what's the risk, right? So we, we would bring on a lot of people and, and you know, churn and burn through, through people. Um, 
And again, we had some gems that really came out of that. You know, uh, Natalie Davis was one of our early interns, and so is uh, Vin Gaeta, uh, Joe Rinaldi. Um, those three people are all still here, um, cornerstones of our agency right now. Um, but there was a lot of people that, that came and went, and the numbers were, were pretty high. But that's, that's how we got started. And, and as people took on more responsibility, they, they um, grew in the organization, and you really had to have that kind of personality to grow. Um, we never defined what that was, but we knew it when we saw it and we retained them. And that brought us up until about 2011, late 2011, when we probably had about, you know, somewhere between probably around seven people at the end of, uh, 2011. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that was like the next big, big change for us. In the article, you talk a lot about how you focused on basically looking for people with certain talents, certain skills. And like, if you apply for a job especially in sort of the startup world it seems like that's what the process is very optimized for there's tons of tests on skills and that it just seems skills above all else but you quickly found out that that wasn't all that you really should be focusing on what what was wrong with kind of that approach well i'll tell you one one story that really sticks out to me with our early interns um, was, yes, I hired um, people for skill. And there's this one girl who was a pretty good designer. Um, a lot of the portfolios that we saw at the time were pretty good. And that's the reason why we, we allowed them to come into the company. And uh, I just remember one time going up to her desk and I just, I, I said something to her and I was like, you know, we, we should adjust the spacing here. It was clearly off, right? She turns around, looks at me and, and, and goes, you didn't go to design school. What do you know? <laughs> and I'm like, everyone else in the company just kind of stopped like, oh, right. And it's like, okay, there's something not right here. And I've always carried that story. Um, and I just laughed. I mean, I laughed at it that night. It didn't really bother me. Like, you know, she never came back after that. Um, I think it was on her own record. She, she was appalled apparently. Um, but there's, there's something, there's something wrong there. And I think as we've grown, um, we didn't know it until probably about 2014, but there's so it's so much more uh, important to have the people that ha- share the same values that you do, um, have the same work ethic, the same drive, the same vision, the same beliefs as you do. Um, so much more important to have that than it is for people that have skills. Um, Vin Gaeta, who's one of my top people, and, and, and I love the kid to death, when he first came in, he wasn't very good. He went to a good school and, and, and again, a master's degree, but he didn't have the same skills that like Joe had or that Tom had. But what Vin had was this drive, this motor, this acceptance, this willingness to learn. Um, like I've never seen that from anybody else. Um, and he's never, ever lost that um, in the five years that he's been with Impact and the five years he's been with me. And it's like, what is that? Like, why do I just love this kid so much? And why is he improving at such a rapid rate? And why does everybody listen to him? Why is he such a boss, right? And it ends up being that he just has the core values that impact needs. And he shares the same beliefs that I share and that Tom shares and that Natalie shares. And he's just, he's a leader of this organization. Um, and I think that's so much more important because there's been so many people come in that have these natural gifts, the gift of gab, and the gift of design, the gift of development, right? And they just have no idea how to apply it. 
and even when you want to work with them, they're just not coachable, whatever it is, or you know, they just don't have the same work ethic and they don't prioritize clients as the same way we prioritize clients. And if you if you don't have that, you're not gonna be successful in our company. And if we have too many of those people, the company's not gonna be successful. So I think that really led us to there's gotta be something here um, and end up being around values. Was there a, a sort of tipping point that Force that realization that, hey, there's something in common amongst these high performers. It's these values like this. We need to search these out or was it just coincidental? We had some problems with some some a few people in the organization and we end up having to make a giant people change um, at the end of 2013. Coming out of that, we knew we were a better agency. We didn't fully know why, but we knew we had to make a change and we knew there was a, a group of people, uh, especially a new wave of people like Katie Pritchard and Erica Doobie, and um, that were just they had something about them that were really special. Um, then I read Good the Great, and Good the Great just like opened my eyes. If you haven't read it yet, it's it's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. It's it led me to read probably another hundred books after that. <laughs> um, That's when you know it's a good book is when you're like, all right, now these are all these different areas I got to go in. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it was like the that was like the first core book I read, and, and it taught me all about core values. And I think there's a few other books like Rockefeller Habits and Traction by by Gina Wickman that I read after that, and I started understanding about core values. Um, so what I ended up doing, and I think I pulled it from one of the books. I have to remember what it was. I keep telling the story, but I can never remember what book it was. It might be Traction. It's either Rockefeller Habits or Traction, where they talk about the mission of Mars. And the whole point of the exercise is like you pretend like you're an alien, you come down, you're, you don't know anything, but you're observing like our company and like, what do you see? Right. And, and so what we did was it kind of took that and we said, well, let's describe the best people in this company. What are the reasons why they're successful? Why do we love these people so much? What makes them who they are? Right. And that was eye opening because we started writing down all these different terms. They own what they're doing. Uh, we can count on them and we had phrases like we didn't even know how to put words to it. It's like we can give them the credit card and we know they're going to do the right thing, right? And we just had all these things written down. And then we did the same exact thing for the people that were no longer with the company. And we said, why are they no longer with the company? What words describe that? And it came up with a whole bunch of other things that, that opened our eyes and said, okay. So we had all these words and we had all these things put together and we ended up being able to work that down, work that down, work that down. We ended up coming up like seven to ten different phrases that really describe this is what we're looking for for all of our people. And it wasn't good enough. It was still too complicated. So I ended up one night it just came to me like it's passion, helpfulness, and dependability. Those are our three core values. PhD, as simple as it gets, right? Passion, helpfulness, dependability. And those are our three core values. Um, and now we can actually look at all of our people. If they don't show passion, healthiness, and dependability, the majority of the time, they can't work here. And everyone in this company, they know those back and forth. They know that that's what's expected. We interview off of that. We review people off of that. We fire people off of that. And everyone here now shares those core values or else they, they wouldn't be here. Core values are something where it's like, you hear sort of so many successful companies talk about them, but at the same time, you wonder if there's a bit of like an echo chamber with it because 
it seems like so many companies talk about these core values, but if you actually go in and look at it, they're not really embodying them. So was it sort of like you developed these core values, waved a magic wand, and everything was magically better? Or like, did, what what was it like after getting these down on paper? No, it still took some time. I mean, we're even as a leadership team, again, my, my leadership team is, is young. Um, you know, at the time, I wasn't even 30 yet when we probably rolled out the core values for the first time. You know, we explained to everybody how we came up with them. It wasn't something we're just made up and we're pushing down everybody is no we really did an analysis of our best people and um and these are the words that describe them actually when we rolled them out what we did we actually did an activity where we said these are the words that describe this person these are the words that describe this person these are words that describe this person and everyone kind of voted for who they were and then we let people know these are the core values they were able to humanize who they were and then as they voted um whoever won that ended up winning the first core award in the first year. So it's kind of a cool way of rolling it out. But that's how we did it. So we didn't really try to impose it. And along the same time, we also let everyone know like what our purpose was for the company and, and the direction we were going. And, and I think over the next year, there were people that got off the bus. They said, hey, listen, this is great that you guys want to be this, but I don't believe in that. You know, I, I believe in, you know, I don't believe in all the work we should do should be to make our clients successful. I believe in creating really beautiful art and things that function mm. really, really cool. Okay. That's great. I have no problem with that. But that's not what we do here at Impact. So, so they left on their own or, or they had to go, right? And, and it took probably about a year and a half, two years to fully transition to really get our, the entire company fully aligned on values and the direction we were going in. Um, so there's a lot of attrition, a lot of the the system probably getting some people out and people leaving on their own. Um, we had to also let a few people go and not because they were bad people, but under the rules and the, uh, the system that we put in place, this is not the best place for them to succeed. So, so they, they had to go. Um, but then I think probably last summer, um, the last person really left and, the team was really aligned in the direction we were going in. You know, we had the vision for where we're going. We had the values in place. Um, people knew that the, the values were not, you know, they knew that they were, they were legit because we've had several rounds of awards. We put so much recognition in place that we recognize people for the core values at any time. Like every Friday meeting, we recognize people. We put a system in place with badges. So people are getting badges for representing the core values. People are getting reviewed on the core values. People are seeing the friends leave because like, they knew that they were legit. Um, and it took some time for everyone to really believe that. And it's not just like the fad of the week. But once we had that, oh, man, the company just took off after that. And, and it was great. It's because we had the right people. We knew what right people actually meant. Because it's something where it's like you intuitively get it. Like having everyone aligned, like these things are important. But like, why do you think that is so important? Like, why can't you just have a bunch of talented people working on projects together? Like, why does it need to be so much more aligned than that to really succeed and really to get impact to where you want it to be? Oh, great question, Andy. Um, because we're a team. We're a team. And I think if it's all about alignment, if people have their own agendas or their own beliefs and the beliefs are, I mean, Hey, listen, not everybody's exactly like me, right? Not everybody's exactly like Tom. Tom and I aren't exactly alike, right? Natalie and I aren't exactly like, I mean, it does take a, a mix of different types of people, 
So that's why it's not, you don't have every single core value that everyone shares and, and nothing else, right? Like there has to be some kind of mix, but there needs to be that foundation of, of, um, of just being aligned. And by having these well-defined, a well-defined purpose, a well-defined vision and a well-defined set of values that everybody is aligned on, um, then we're all playing on the same team. Uh, and, and people can do their own litmus test of, should I be doing this or should I not? Is this the right thing to do? Or is this the wrong thing to do? Do I have to ask the boss for this or do I not have to ask the boss for this? And I think that also makes people much more comfortable here when they, they know, okay, all I know is I share these values. I'm the same way. I'm just going to do my best work every day. I don't have to be micromanaged. Um, and it just makes the whole team just work better together. Um, people are producing their best work under a system where they know what the values are, know what's expected of them every single day. Because um, I think that's the other part of it, is people know exactly what's expected of them um, from work. And there's no room for misinterpretation. The values are very well defined. And, and so is the purpose. And if you're working towards all of that and you're representing the same values, that you're doing a great job here and we're going to say, keep going. And if you make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes, but no, we're not going to worry about that because you, you're doing it with the right intentions. You're doing it with the right values. You're going for the same goal. And I think, uh, I think that just makes a, a much better team. It almost is like the, the values can act almost as a manager. Like you said, a litmus test is that instead of constantly having to guess what someone, your boss or whoever would want you to do when you do have these clear values, you can kind of derive the answer yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's what we want for our people. We want them to, to feel autonomy, right? We want them to um, feel like they're in a position to do their best work and make the best decisions and that we trust them. Um, and I think just having core values in place just gives them everything they need to be successful. Last summer, once things really kind of clicked and you had everyone basically on the same team working towards the same goals, what what changed? Was it just things other than like the kind of generic things took off? Like what was it like from when you started out to what things were like at that point? Yeah, um, we were in really bad shape last summer. Uh, we were losing money every month and a good amount of money every month. Uh which is not, we had never been losing money. We just a big combination of the, the wrong management structure, the wrong, um, I wouldn't say the wrong people, but, but people that didn't share the core values, just a lot of, a lot of issues. Right. And then it eventually hit the PNL, right. And you're looking and you're like, Oh my God, we're losing money every single month. What's, what's happening here? And a lot of money. Um, so, but it was like around the time when we knew we had this team. We wanted to stop the bleeding from good people leaving, but we knew we had a lot of good people at that point. We had downsized from like 36 people down to 23 um, and even lower because we ended up adding some really good people during that process. I think the biggest turning point is I remember this day very, very well. We had a meeting. And so we did this like town hall style. Everyone had a seat at the table. Uh, and I just, I was just honest with them. I was as honest as I possibly could be. I showed them all the numbers, all the financials. I told them exactly where I think we made all the mistakes. 
Um, I, I try to make this emotional for them so they can feel it, but then also present the same confidence that I have, that we have the best team here right now. And I have the full, full faith that we can turn the ship around. And, and we started talking about what we needed to do to turn it around. So I showed them this is what the best thing or the, the most important things we need to do. And then they started talking about it and they were getting excited. We could do this. We can do that. We just made a tweak here. If we focused more here, this is why we're messing up. And oh my God, we didn't even think about that. And everyone left there because we ended up keep going until everybody had like their own objectives for the quarter and what they were going to work on that everyone left there so gung ho. And it was just one of the coolest quarters I've ever seen because within one month we were profitable again. We had fixed so many things. People took ownership of it. They were excited to do it. And it was so cool to show everybody the next month, like, look, we made a thousand dollars this month, right? It wasn't a lot, but we made a thousand dollars this month and everyone cheered, right? And we're like, this is so cool. And I, I didn't incentivize them with money or profits or anything. They all have their fixed base salaries. No one, no one here has like a bonus program. So they weren't doing it for money. They were doing it for the team. They were doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's why we exist because we're a team, right? And it didn't stop because I we kept everybody like we gotta keep going, guys, because this is we're better than this. We're better than break even. We should be doing so much better. Come the end of the quarter, we had the best quarter we ever had from a revenue standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint. We came out with all the same people. No one left the company, right? And everyone was super excited. Man, did we party at our holiday party that year. We had a really good end of the year. It, it, it would make you want to cry if you saw how incredible it was that everybody came together. That sounds like quite the turnaround, like going from losing money and then just literally months later having a record-setting quarter. There's a couple lessons here. The first one is, is sort of the bigger picture. It's like be transparent, get everyone on board, get everyone on the same team working towards the same goals and knowing that you trust them so that they can actually take ownership. Because without that, it's really hard to make things work, especially as you scale up. What were some of the things that were happening that were kind of hurting your margins that were making it so that you guys were losing money? Um, I, I think from a uh, client retention standpoint, I think there was a lot around we had some of the probably the wrong structure in place. So we ended up having people on accounts that probably shouldn't have been on accounts. Um, I think they were trying their best, but the way they talked to the clients and, and some of the things they were saying weren't the right messages. So there was some turnover that came from that. So we had to fix that. And we talked through as an organization, how are we going to get all these clients to trust us? And we did some basics and get some framework across the board. Um, I think fundamentally one of the things we did too is we worked our way backwards. Um, we end up setting uh, as you know a few members of the leadership team by letting everyone know this is what it's going to look like in three years if we do everything we need to do. And everyone believed that we can do it. Like we didn't set these astronomical numbers or anything. We set something that was reasonable growth, but but we should absolutely do. And then we end up breaking that down to one year. What do we have to do? in the following year and what do we have to do in the next quarter to be on pace to be there for the next year and, and all the way through and um, I think everybody just knowing these are like the three to seven things we have to do this quarter that gets us in route to set us up for next year 
which sets us up for our three-year plan. And for everyone to be able to say, know how they fit into that and, and the quality work that they have to do and the standards to, to make that happen and, and the team also holding themselves accountable. I think that made a big, big change. So obviously we had lost accounts. So a lot of the change over the go from losing money every month to making money every month was just getting some new accounts back on. Right? But we also had some staff changes. We had some people leave and we had some key people come on. Um, Brie uh, Rangel is one of the, the people that came on and she just immediately made a big difference and, and people navigated towards her and we see the way they were, they were working was differently. So, um, so by getting the right people on the accounts and, um, and, and bringing some new accounts in that were really good for us and, and let everyone know we have to be able to take on new work right now. So don't tell me you're, you're overworked. Don't tell me that you're maxed out because, because we have to be able to take this on. So people didn't complain. They said, how can I be more efficient? How can I get, how can I stop doing certain things? How can I take on this new work and make that happen? Um, and knowing that, you know, cause it, it was easy for people to cop out, I think, before too. And they'd say, you know, it's not my job or I already have enough work to do. We need to hire. We need to hire. We need to hire. Where it's like, no, guys, we're not hiring. Everybody can do more. And when you do more, you're going to get paid more. And we're going to stay a small team for the next year. And that's what we're going to be. So don't even ask me to hire because it's not even the questions. We need to figure out how to do this because look at the numbers. We should be able to handle this much work. And we're not even there yet. So what, 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 how, let's focus internally. Let's focus on our efficiencies and our processes and things we should stop doing so we can do the work that gets us to this level. And that was really a good full year working on that. But again, it's all a mindset, I guess. A lot of times it's easy for people, not even just in agencies, but in any business to just coast and to say that, oh, well, I have too much work, so I can't take on this. And then for companies to grow just because everyone acts busy. But when you kind of have those constraints forcing you to evaluate everything you're doing, you're realizing that a lot of the tasks that you're doing don't need to actually be done. And a lot of them that you're doing aren't being done in a very efficient way. And so that's kind of almost like a forcing function to make you reevaluate all of that. And I think the, um, I think just a, a quote too that I kept saying to everybody about um, if you could get more work done, then you have higher value. And if you have higher value to the organization, I have to pay you more. And, and not that everyone's here is driven by money, but that it starts clicking their head. Like the more I do, the more I'll get paid. And I don't think a lot of young employees always think that way. So to get these people who want to do more um, and, and, and say, the more I do, the, the, it's better for my career. And then, and then be able to say, look, look at Gary Vaynerchuk, right? He does a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's an entrepreneur, but he found a way to get a ton of stuff done. That's why he makes a lot of money, and that's why he's so successful, and that's why you guys all idolize him. And and get get the young employees thinking that way, not like, oh, it's not my job, or you're putting too much on me. Like, no, like be excited that you have the opportunity to do a lot of stuff. If I'm asking you to do things, that means that I see a lot of potential in you. And if you could find ways to get that done man, is this organization going to value you? And if we don't, someone else will, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a fair point. And it's, it's funny because you mentioned that, especially for younger employees. I know a lot of um, my friends who are a few years younger are kind of, they've been in the career for a few years. They're looking about getting a raise. And the reasons are, well, 
I've been here for this many years. I've, I've done this, I've done that. And it's never focused on the actual value that they've created. And that's what any business owner is going to care about. It's not that different, but it's, it's, it's a real mindset change on what actually matters. It's not just showing up that matters. It, it's the result. It's what you can produce. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that mindset, you know, was a big change. And then, of course, as we cut the team down from 36 down to 23, we did have some money to play with. So we were able to give significant raises to the key players. And they, and since then, they've seen a couple of really big rounds of, of good size merit increases. So they know that I'm not just saying that to them because they're actually seeing it in their paycheck and their compensation. Um, but I wouldn't say most of my people care about this. Some of them say, gee, thanks, Bob. <laughs> like they, they care about other things much more than they care about their own compensation. Um, but, but in, in getting people with that attitude, though, goes back to having those core values as part of your hiring process is that getting the right people on in the beginning so that they're, they're not complaining about having too much work. They're instead finding ways to get it done while focusing on the actual creating the most value. And it's interesting. I, my, some of my hardest working people in this company, my, my top performers, have never, ever asked me for a raise. I don't know what that means. They've always received them. They're my highest paid people in the company, but never said, hey, listen, I want more money. Never held me hostage. Never complained once. They just, they go out there, they give it their all, and they know that the organization will take care of them. And I love that because then the responsibility is on me. And I have to say, listen, if I don't give this person a $10,000 raise, I could risk losing them. But that's what, they're, that's what they're, they deserve. That's their value right now. They've significantly increased over the last six months to a year that they're playing at this level now. Um, and I love that. And again, I don't know if that's the right system. I'm sure other agencies probably have some more science behind it. Um, we put a system in place that, you know, says we're going to do regular, you know, 3% raises twice a year. Um, but I always blow past that because my people are just improving at such a rapid rate. Uh, so you have it in place where twice a year you evaluate for the 3% raises, but if you see the value kind of above and beyond that, you'll go literally above and beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I probably could do a better job of having a formula or system for that. And I think that's something I'm going to have to work on in the next six months to, to get something better in place. But right now, I just, every six months, I try to evaluate what value that person is bringing to my organization, what they're going to bring, and, and what is that worth? What is that, what's fair market value for that? And that's how I, I've been determining um, compensation. Do you guys have a meeting, like a review where you go over that so that you can kind of point to the things that you say, like, hey, these are areas where you've done really, really well. If you keep going that way, you'll keep getting raises like this. Or if they're not getting raises, you can say, hey, we haven't seen enough value created in this area. Like, this is where you could do. Or what is the process like for handing out those raises? Yeah, it's something we have to do better um, better at. I think we're small enough where um, I can get with our direct manager who has – now, direct managers always have one-on-one meetings. If it's not weekly, it's bi-weekly, depending on the employee and, and how new they are and how much support they need from their manager. Um, but there's always these meetings, and and if not talking about raises, but they're talking about improvement and, and what do they need to do to continue to improve and get to that next level. And most people can look at somebody else in the company and say, that's kind of where I want to be. So we start talking, like, how do you get to that position? Um, and once they start getting to that position and they're able to take on that type of work, then, you know, we have to make sure that they're being compensated for that level. Um, and again, we're small enough where I do decide most of the, um, 
the salaries. Uh, I do get input from the other managers, but um, you know, as we get bigger, there's going to have to be a better system for that so we can so we can scale with that. I'm going to stop off right there for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, he's going to break down the steps to transform your agency. So hang tight. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Now, Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or on the back of napkins or whatever else you're using and start getting the insights into how your team is actually spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you. Our best clients are agency owners. And while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork, but without all the crazy fees. Where they really find the true value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with a project management tool to see what tasks are taking up their team's time. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I do want to warn you, though, there's a good chance once you see this data, you're going to be sick when you realize how little time is spent actually delivering the project itself. But you can't set up the procedures to make your agency more efficient if you're just guessing where time is being spent. So give Hubstaff a try so you can stop guessing and start streamlining your agency. Head over to hubstaff.com today and sign up for a free, no credit card required, 14-day trial and get your agency back on track. All right, let's kick it back to Bob. This transitions pretty well into kind of what I wanted to touch on last. And it's the second part of your series was 10 Steps to Transform Your Agency. And it was sort of highlighting the lessons you learned along the way. For the listeners, I'll make sure to link up all the posts so they can kind of get the full picture, but we won't have time to dive into all of the lessons, so there were a few I want to dive into really right now. Are you cool with that? Let's go. All right. So the first one that I want to talk about was you said listening to your people and taking action. Mm. And one part you mentioned was you did, it was the 360-degree feedback. Reading that feedback was like the worst day of my life. So to back up a little bit, can you describe what that process is like? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so my uncle, who was very successful, and he's been a mentor of mine, um, you know, he kept telling me for years, because you got to get 360 feedback. you got to get 360 feedback. And that's basically um, everyone around me in the organization reviewing me um, and, and letting me know in, in an honest way um, what my strengths were, what my weaknesses were. So... I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to do it. I hired a consultant named David Tate, who was phenomenal. Um, and he walked me through. We started off the entire process. We did um, all different types of assessments, including the Hogan assessment, the uh, Myers-Briggs, and, and different things to understand where my strengths are. And, um, and then we got to the, the 360, and he did it two ways. He did a, a qualitative, and he did a quantitative. Um, actually, started with quantitative which was a process where he took about 10 people and they all um, went online and ended up taking a couple hours and they, they rated me on all different types of skills and, and how well I was in certain things. And they had an opportunity to comment on each of these skills. Um, and the second part was he followed up after his findings with the 10 people. Most of them are the same. There were some different people and he deep dove in a little bit deeper to get more color around you know, where my strengths and weaknesses really were. So he was able to give me back this phenomenal report. One uh, the, off the qualitative one, um, I'm sorry, off the quantitative one, it was actually a printed book that was incredibly impressive. And then he, he summarized all of his other findings in another document. So, and it was all really complimentary stuff? Of course, yeah. They told me how perfect <laughs> I was, right? Right. So I'm reading it. And of course, I, I asked everybody before to be critically honest. It is anonymous. And... You know, I, I'm reading through 
the data, like just the numbers and the pure data of it, right? And I'm like, all right, so here are my strengths, here are my weaknesses. I get it. It's a scale. And, and um, I'm obviously going to be weak at some things and strong at some things. Uh, I think I was strong in like the visionary and strategy and things like that. Um, and I was weak in some process-oriented stuff and, um, and work-life balance, right? <laughs> so per- pretty typical for an entrepreneur. So I was like, okay, I get that. I knew that about myself. And I know I had to I had those things to work on. But then reading the feedback, and it, the feedback was almost all over the place. And it was so interesting. My biggest um, takeaway from doing that 360 was the people that reported directly to me viewed me one way. And the people that reported indirectly to me, or actually didn't report into me at all, um, viewed me a completely different way and totally a way that I didn't think that they would view me. Um, there were things in there like Bob cares more about his own financial success and his ego than he does about anyone in the company. Um, and there was a lot of things like that. Right. And it was like, it was almost like a dagger in my heart and just turn. Right. So after about four days of crying, um, <laughs> No, I, I'm not that long. But after like the initial shock wore off, it's like really taking this data. And there was so much of it. And really trying to understand and dive in deep, like what is the problem? And and I think there were some things I got. Like there was also like, you know, I thought I was a really good teacher because I was always learned, like loving to read things and share with the team. But the way people were receiving it was they weren't, they, were, they didn't think I was a good teacher because they weren't receiving it the same way I was teaching it. Um, so there's little things like that, but I think the biggest takeaway is just that big difference. And what am I going to do with it? I understood, okay, we are just not aligned. Again, this is around the same time we were, this is last summer. So it really opened my eyes. And especially where I thought I found the biggest issue was around my creatives and my developers. Because they really didn't report to me. They, there was a manager in place of all my creatives and all my developers. And anything, and that, that person felt pretty good about me. But from, from them, nothing got down to the rest of the team. So that team was just completely misaligned with the rest of the organization. And they viewed the company in a completely different way. They were the ones that felt not appreciated. They were the ones that were, um, you know, more gossipy and complaining. And that they were also in the three, some of those people were in the 360 survey. And that was like, that was the aha moment that I had a manager problem. I had a really big manager. Problem. And that's what really, that was one of the biggest takeaways. So, and that was also followed by listening to Brian Halligan over at HubSpot talk about how they do a net promoter score and all their employees. And when he sees that the net promoter score drops for a department, that's when he knows he has to make a manager change. And I was like, that just makes so much sense. So um, that led to another lesson there too. Okay, so so get feedback. Don't be afraid of the feedback. You can always learn from the feedback. It's critically important. And I know another list thing that you wanted me to talk about today was, you know, um, about managers, right? And how important it is that you have strong managers that can take what happens at a leadership team meeting or talk things that you're working with them and then bring that down to their department and everyone in that department is as gung-ho and rah, rah, rah as your direct leadership team and that's how you're really going to win. And if you don't have a manager that can do that, then you really need to make a manager change. And again, I learned that the hard way. 
when you think about it that way, like you almost have a game of telephone where you are passing your message on to their managers and then they not only just have to pass on the message, but also kind of pass on the enthusiasm and all of that. And like if any of those pieces are missing, you're probably going to be the one that gets the blame for it at the top. Yeah. And just because you have somebody that is a star, a star individual contributor, doesn't mean they're not valuable for your company, but but they, they might not be the best manager because manager is a whole different set of skills. And that's where I got it wrong. I had this person that was one of my best designers. So I was like, all right, let's put this person in charge of all the creatives. And um, but I'm pretty sure that person left the, the, the meetings, leadership team meetings, and went back to their desk and just said, hmm, and got back to work. And probably didn't let anyone know what was going on. And, and it sounds so easy. It sounds so simple, but I don't know. I just learned things the hard way, I guess. No, but I also like what you said in your article. You said, we let them know what we're doing to address the concerns, but also what we can't do and why. And I think that last part is really important because it's obviously different with employees, but in any business, there's sort of the mantra that the customer is always right. And that's not really the case. And this is the same thing where you're not necessarily necessarily saying that you're going to lead by mob rule and immediately enact every single piece of feedback that you hear. But what you are going to do is listen, let them know that you've heard their concerns. And if you're not going to act on it, let them know why. So you really can be as transparent as possible. I think that mindset of not doing everything they say, but if you don't, still keeping the loop is really crucial to building trust mm-hmm. in the team. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's just it's just active listening, right? Um, not going back. If someone says, oh, I have an idea and we should be doing this, or how come we're not doing that? And not just going back to them and, and saying, oh, well, this is all the reasons why, right? And and getting them to like, tune out and get frustrated. But say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Why is that important to you? Where could we be missing? And then really try to understand the core of what they really, really care about. And then ask them if, you know, if we did this instead, would that be better? And get them bought in. Get them to feel like their opinion really, really matters because it does. And I think that's another skill that a strong manager has to have. Because then what people feel like just by asking them more questions and diving deep to what they really care about, that's almost sometimes better than even doing what they're, they're talking about. Um, especially if it's something you can't do right away. But then, okay, that sounds like a great idea. I am completely on board with that, too. As soon as we can do that, I want to. We're going to put it on you know, our backlog. And it's something we're going to address this leadership team. And we're going to see if we can come up with a plan to do that. Um, I can't tell you exactly when it's going to happen, but I think it's a great idea. And the person hopefully will leave that conversation feeling pretty good. Like, I'm, I'm part of this organization. I contributed today. And it's right, instead of kind of want. swearing under their breath about, oh, they didn't listen again. Exactly. The last kind of lesson I wanted to touch on was about letting the sort of what you call the B players go because like you're saying not everyone's going to be a good fit and you had two different periods where you had to let some people go and you learned some lessons about the right way to do that can you speak to that a bit yeah well you know when we talk about B players is a podcast I listened to I think it was a Tony Robbins podcast and and they're talking about culture and how important it is to really um, you know if you bucket your all your people you have A players you have B players and C players um, your C players are going to get flushed out anyways. They can't do the job. They don't have the skills and the culture fit. You're going to get rid of them anyways. Most organizations don't have a problem doing that. The B players are the ones that, um, again, we talked about culture a little bit. They maybe, um, 
they're there, they do their job, but nothing more. Um, if they can get away with less, they will. They never really give you a real reason to fire them, but they also give you a real reason to, like, to promote them. They're just kind of like clogging up your system, right? And that's really what, and it, it's terrible to say that, but that's really what they are. They're sitting in a seat that somebody else could be sitting in and passing through that seat and helping you grow the organization. And if you have somebody that's kind of just sitting there and they're not advancing, you can't keep them in the company. So, so that's really how you can kind of define a B player. And the A players are just going to, again, those are the ones that are, you know, every six to 12 months, you want to promote them. They're driving a lot of value for the organization. They're growing. So, so we had some, some people that we unfortunately had to classify in that organization. That doesn't mean they're B players in every organization. There's a B player in, in this company and what we're trying to do. Um, and, and there were many of them have left here and, and have been super successful in, in other jobs. And, and I'm, I love that about them. But they just weren't going to, going to do it here. And we had to have honest conversations. So the first time I, I let people go and I had this big mess, I had to make a change. Um, and some of them were in that category where they were struggling and they weren't growing and they were holding other people back, not on purpose, but they just, they were in the seat. And there was also a mix of people that had to go for other reasons, right? Um, I surprised everybody. And I hate that I did that. I didn't have conversations with them, let them know that we might have to look at a transition or anything. I called them in one day and let them know we're making a change. And they were like, what? Um, and like, is this a joke? Are you kidding me right now? I'm like, no, we're, we're making a change and, and we're letting you go. Um, you know, Tom's going to escort you out, right? And it, it was just, it was a... a, a day for me i felt crappy about it I, I can't imagine for some of the people that meant good and tried but were struggling i can't imagine how they felt um and uh and i feel really bad about that it, again don't get me wrong I, I the the change had to happen and and the company we were we had you know the people that were there after like we had to make that change right it was the way i did it so a few years later um where, you know, my dad kept like advising, people need to know where they stand at all times. And he kept drilling that to me. Everyone needs to know where they stand. They need to know their stand. So when I knew I had people that were frustrated and they're visibly at their desk, they, they were working through lunch, they're staying late, they weren't making good progress, the clients weren't happy with them, they're giving it their all. I realized I need to let them know exactly where they stand. And I would have conversations with them, really human conversations. Let's go walk around the building. Let's talk about it. What, what, if you were successful in this role, what would it look like? And, and what can we do to make that transition? And when it wasn't working to let them know, like we need to, we need to make a change. And they knew that that was coming and then say, again, some people would say, this is not the right thing to do. It's just what we've been doing and it's working for us. So take it full disclaimer, but let them know we're going to make a change. How can we make this easy for you and how can you help it make it easy for us? And let's talk through it. And come up with a 30 to 60 day transition plan. Hey, listen, they have clients. They're attached to clients, right? And, and it's, it, you know, just letting them go and, and then telling a client, oh, we let that person go and you're getting a whole new account manager, right? You know, like, let's make a transition plan that works for both parties. I'll give you great reviews. Um, I will uh, be a great reference for you. I'll help you work on a resume. I'll look at jobs with you and see if I can find places that are a good place for you. If I know of anyone that's, that I think you'd be a good fit for, I'll let you know. Let me see if I can make, help you make that transition. What do you want to be doing? Like, 
if you were to start over right now, like what would your dreams be and how can you go after that? Like, and have those kinds of conversations with them and be there for them throughout the entire process. And then, you know, it, it was amazing. Some of them, I watched like all the weight come off of them. They're almost like they were the best employees. They were the best they've ever been at impact in that period where they weren't worried about doing a bad job anymore because they knew it was coming to an end. And they, they still gave it their all to come because they knew I was giving my all to them. And, and the, their teammates appreciated it. By the time they left, we had somebody maybe hired already for it, or at least we had a plan in place. And it was just such a good transition. Um, so we were able to do that a few times. Uh, and uh, and I, I like doing that. It just seems better. Whether or not you treat it that way, for the employee, they're going to be having a transition. So you might as well accept that and work with them to try and make it as easy as possible for them and also give them the opportunity to turn things around. And so I think that's the at least more of a human approach to doing it. But see, I think that's that's one key thing that we have to say is you give them that chance to let them know, like, this is what needs to happen. This is what success looks like. But once you make that decision, you can't go back on it. You can't be wishy-washy either. If you say we have to make a change to them and they're going to be here for the next you know, 30 days, if you decide you're going to do that plan, if they start performing well, you can't go back and offer them their job back. You have to, you have to stand by that. And that's, that's super important. So I just add that in. Is there an outcome in the transition where they stay with the company? Um, if you made that decision, then no. Then Okay, but so if, okay, yeah. I see. But you, earlier on. Earlier on, you have, yeah, certainly. Early on, when you, you see the performance is not where you want it to be or they're not resembling the core values, you have to let them know and you have to put a plan in place to say, this is what we're going to do over the next period of time. But quite frankly, this is exactly what we're looking at. If this is not you, we understand. And if this is not what you want to do, we get it. Um, but this is what's 100% expected out of everybody in this company and out of anybody that's in this role. And if you can't perform this level, you can't work here. And we said to them when we hire them, we said to them throughout their entire journey, so it's not a surprise. Um, but then when we, we make that decision, this person can't do this job, then there's no going back. You've given so much kind of all over the place and just good lessons to building a lasting agency that not only gets by, but one that really thrives and grows and is able to get to the point where it's a big agency that's having a real, I was going to say a different word without being cliche, but has a real impact. <laughs> but no, so I want to wrap things up just hearing what your plans are for the future. What does sort of next quarter look like? And then what does the long term look like for impact? World domination. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I'll tell you. So, I mean, we're not perfect. We have a lot of things that we're working on here. Um, I'd say the, the biggest things that we're trying to do right now is... Um, working on our efficiencies and continuously improving our quality for our clients. Uh, I think we, we have, I, I think a lot of agencies, especially in the HubSpot space, um, probably feel the same and that there needs to be significant work done there. Um, so I know we really need to focus on that. Uh, we're working with a consultant to implement Scrum and, uh, and we're deep into that journey right now and make sure our playbooks are perfect, making sure we have the right systems and tools um, software to be as efficient as we possibly can. Um, we're always doing, we do a ton of professional development with our team. So um, every week or every other week, we have some kind of workshop internally here for our teams to, to build their skills. 
Um, we want this to be the best place to work for our people. So we're continuously listening to them and how can we improve the work environment for them. You know, we, we recently put a 401k in place. So always focus on make sure we're, we're given, you know, have you know, hopefully uh, above average compensation. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're trying to grow. So there's, there's obviously some revenue goals here we're working towards. Um, social responsibility is a big thing is, you know, I wish we at the core and maybe when we started, we were doing more things for our community, but we have some initiatives around social responsibility that we're working on. So we have about uh, seven goals we're working on for this year, and most of them are actually themes, so they'll continue into next year as well. Um, so we, we've got a lot going on here at Impact. So it is a fun place to be, though. No, it sounds like it. And so if listeners kind of want to hear more about seeing sort of not just what you guys have gone through, but where, where you're going in the future, where is the best place for them to head? So where we're going in the future um, – you know, I'm going to be publishing a lot more on LinkedIn. So if you follow me on LinkedIn, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to have more of a document of my journey being posted there. Uh, I enjoyed talking about the 360 feedback. So I'll be, be posting more, more content on there. It's more around the, the agency, uh, the journey of an agency owner. Um, cause our blog is going to be obviously what our blog is. Um, so that's probably the best place to follow the updates and things we're working on. Awesome. Well, Bob, I just want to say thanks again for coming on the show. It was great chatting with you. Andy, thank you so much, man. I really, really appreciate it. After listening to Bob talk and seeing the amazing results at Impact Branding and Design, it's obvious that core values are more than just another business cliche. That being said, it's also clear that you don't just write down a few buzzwords and transform your agency overnight. First, you need to define your values then prioritize values over skill when hiring, and make sure your agency embodies those values in everything they do, from awards you give out to your employees all the way to how you evaluate their performance and give out bonuses. Then you need to get rid of those who aren't fully on board. This isn't as simple as getting rid of the obviously toxic employees. Instead, Bob argues that to really embody this set of core values, you need to also get rid of the people who are just showing up, filling up a seat, and going home. If everybody isn't actively working towards the same goals, it's going to be difficult to get ahead. If you can do all that in your agency, not only will you be part of something bigger than yourself, but that culture you helped create will pay dividends in your bottom line. That's all I have for you this week. If you enjoyed this show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review telling me what you learned. I love hearing from listeners and positive reviews like that really help us grow our audience. So if you could take a second to do that, I'd really appreciate it. I'll talk to you next week. See ya.